God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I speak to you this morning in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. We had a wealth of beautiful readings this morning, but I'm preaching on 2 Samuel, so buckle up. On the Caribbean coastline, just at the southern point of the Riviera Maya, lies the ancient city of Tulum. All that survives of this once great city are stones, but the stones themselves tell a great story. The foundations of the city are all marked out, the gates with their grand entrance, the streets winding through the city, and the foundations of all the public places, like the market. Only three structures remain in Tulum. El Castillo is a marvel of engineering, a pyramid sitting on a precipice of a 40-foot cliff dropping straight into the ocean. It was a beacon for sailors and the crown jewel of the rich trade that happened at the city. The second is a smaller building called the Temple of Frescoes, named for, surprise, it's frescoes that are preserved on the walls to track the movement of the sun through each of its three rooms. A room to represent the land of the dead, a room to represent the land of the living, and a room to represent the land of heaven. But it's the smallest of the three buildings that's the most captivating. In this city full of sharp lines and perfect right angles, There's a small temple to the side of El Castillo that's quite different. In a city where perfection is so sharp and so clear that the buildings don't look like the works of human hands, there's one building that's very obviously of human construction. The sides are leaning, the door frame is crooked, and the roof looks like it will slide off at any moment, just as it has for hundreds of years. It's the temple of the descending God. The Mayans believed that the God of life and light would come to earth frequently. And when the Lord did, he wouldn't come to the perfect places. Instead, God chose to come to them and bless them in the broken places. Before today's scene in the second book of Samuel, King David has been the golden boy, the chosen Named by the Lord and anointed by Samuel, the people have put off Saul as their king and are eager to place David, the boy shepherd who defeated the giant Goliath, who regained the ark of the Lord, who defeated the Philistines and the Amorites as the king of both Judah and Israel. But in his rise to power, David is horrified one night by the thought that he lives in a great palace of cedar, While the dwelling place of God, the place where God arrives to be with his blessed people in the ark, is constantly on the move, and placed night after night in a tent in the middle of the people. David tells Nathan, his prophet in residence, that he will build God a dwelling place, a palace of cedar greater than any king's on earth. I will make you a house, David says to the Lord. But the Lord's reply to David uses the same words. No, says the Lord, 
I will make you a house. God tells David through the prophet Nathan that he does not need a house of cedar. God wants to continue to be among the people in these imperfect and broken conditions at the beating heart of the people of God. Instead, God will make a house of David, a lineage of royalty that will last through the ages and always be marked by God's blessing. So David is in the process of figuring out what it means to be a house of God and is enjoying the fruits of God's blessing and favor in his meteoric rise to ultimate power. But today we see the story that strips the gold right off of this boy king. David, as the king, lives at the highest point in the tallest house in the city, and his sweeping vista is a tangible sign of his power and dominion over everyone else. So as he strolls along his rooftop after his afternoon nap, seeing the whole town laid before him, David sees and wills that all of this, everything and everyone, is rightfully his possession and in his command. What stands out to David on that rooftop? Not the homes of the rich to compare his palace to, or the poor begging for their livelihood. Instead, David sees a woman bathing. And after discovering that she is the daughter of an important man and the wife of one of his army's most important commanders, currently in battle, he summons her to the castle. Now, Bathsheba, like so many women in the Bible, and so many women, period, is recreated in our popular culture as a seductress, even an unintentional one, so beautiful and so sexy that David just couldn't resist, and we blame her. But nothing, not a single word in the Bible from David, from Nathan, from God himself, condemns Bathsheba. She is the paragon of womanhood in the Old Testament, a beautiful piece of property, belonging either to her father or to her husband, and now desired to be possessed by the king. King David summons Bathsheba, rapes her, and dismisses her. Then a letter arrives. The only things in the Bible that belong to Bathsheba alone are three written words to the king. I am pregnant. In this assertion of personhood, Even in this singular instance, Bathsheba doesn't have a voice of her own. And she is again understood as the possession of another person. Bathsheba is always, always some man's daughter or wife or mother. By writing, I am pregnant, Bathsheba doesn't allow David to escape the consequences of the reality that he's created for himself. This deep fault line being constructed in the foundation of his house And this simple acknowledgement of an ugly truth is compounded by David's summoning of Bathsheba's husband Uriah to him. Uriah is juxtaposed to David with his deep faithfulness. He will sleep outside the castle walls, denying himself the comforts of home to be faithful to his king, to the men of the army he's responsible for leading and protecting, and to the dwelling place of God in the ark and a tent in the field. David's reaction to Uriah is to order him to the front lines of battle where he can be sure that Uriah is murdered. And when he is dead, David adds Bathsheba to his harem, makes her his wife, and she gives birth to their first child who does not survive. 
and later she will give birth to the great King Solomon. This is an ugly and a hard and a cruel story, and I'm sure the Boslers are delighted that I picked this for their baptismal Sunday. (laughs) But it is an important one. David's great love and zeal for the Lord does not prevent and does not preclude him from great sin, from wide swaths of separation from God made by pursuing his own darkening will. And yet, God does not remove his blessing from David. David is beloved by the Lord constantly, and it turns out that God participates in the good consequences and the consequences that are born of evil. David was chosen to rule and blessed with God promising him as a house that will last forever, a royal lineage that will carry God's blessing from generation to generation. It will be a house. It will be a temple that over and over again will let God come into the imperfect corners and the leaning foundations of humankind until one day the royal body that houses God will be made perfect. And today we see that royal perfection, the King of Kings, in Jesus. Jesus is standing on a mountaintop with thousands before him, aching to hear about the kingdom of God. And as the incarnate power of all heaven and earth, Jesus has the opportunity to do anything and get anything that he wants. Right now, he is at the height of his popularity, and the people are clamoring to make him their king. Instead of standing on the rooftop, commanding that everything come to him so that he would be built up like David, Jesus is standing on the mountaintop telling the disciples that from his hands will come the sustenance and the building material that thousands need in order to be fortified in body, mind, and spirit. Today we remember that Jesus came to share and model God's abundant kingdom of mercy and love. And it's a kingdom where each and every person counts as recognized, counts as blessed, and each and every person is beloved. As the dwelling place of God incarnate, Jesus blesses the brokenness of everyone around him and will also bless us in his own breaking David, the royal ancestor of Christ, shows us that being blessed by God and being beloved by God does not preclude a person from being broken themselves or from breaking. Flannery O'Connor and St. Paul write that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. We're all places where God dwells and signs that God is present in the world to the world. This is a reality, not a mandate for perfection. You and I are all imperfect temples where God decides to dwell. We are all imperfect temples that can be beacons of God. In a few moments, we'll welcome Benjamin and James into the kingdom of God and into the body of Christ. We'll baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and they will be marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. Their bodies will be temples of the Holy Spirit as they continue to be built by God and Christ here with their family and with us, their Trinity family. The temple of the descending God at Tulum is intentionally imperfect. 
a tangible reminder that as God comes to us, God accepts our limitations and our blatant inability to be perfect. But God still arrives to live among us and use the temples of our bodies. Each encounter with God in our imperfections or brokenness is an opportunity to recognize both our blessings and how we can be a blessing to others. And this is what we'll explore in a moment when we say together the baptismal covenant. Each question that we're asked is not a charge to be perfect, and it's certainly not something that we pretend to claim credit for alone. Each question, will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? These questions are opportunities, and opportunities to live our lives by saying, I will, with God's help. The baptismal covenant outlines the life-giving opportunities we have to be blessed and broken outposts of the Holy Spirit in this blessed and broken world. Jesus adopts us through baptism as the heirs and heiresses of the kingdom of God. And it is a kingdom not made of our own doing or power. It is a kingdom of abundance and mercy and blessing. We are adopted into the body of Christ, and we dwell in him as he dwells in us. The kingdom of God, as it turns out, is a kingdom of many dwelling places— a royal dominion of our imperfect temples of the Holy Spirit, and a realm of little altars everywhere. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.